Thank you for your attendance and attention at the conference, arriving at our last session. It's been a, uh, a joy to get to know some of you more, to meet many people, to get to spend some time with my dad and with Pascal. It's always nice to see, to see good friends and to, to learn from their sessions, giving my full attention to everything they taught. I've, it's very nice to have other people doing teaching alongside of you. Uh, it's really wonderful uh, to enjoy and benefit from their hard work also. Um, this evening, as we come to a conclusion and arrive at the New Covenant, uh, we arrive at the, the picture on the Lego set. <laughs> we arrive at the end that was decreed and declared from the beginning, the unveiling of the mystery of Christ, which is no longer a mystery. As Paul said, a re- revealing of the plan hidden for ages. In the New Covenant, we see where God has been guiding history through all of the preceding covenants. And so first, we're going to consider what is called the covenant of redemption, and then we'll look at the new covenant itself and conclude with the eschatological nature of the kingdom. So first, the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. If you are unfamiliar with the doctrine of the covenant of redemption, it may sound like a a strange term, the covenant of redemption, isn't that just the new covenant? We're redeemed, aren't we, by, by the new covenant? What, what is the covenant of redemption? And uh, an easy way to think about the covenant of redemption is with this phrase, the oath to Christ. The oath to Christ. Because when we get to the new covenant and its promises for us, we need to realize that there is a preceding covenantal foundation for the new covenant in promises that were made to Christ. Would you turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 6? If you ask what oaths were sworn to Christ or what promises were made to Christ, once you answer that question, you will find the covenant of redemption. Hebrews chapter 6. In Hebrews 6, I'm just going to pick some pieces. The author, whose name was Pablo, we read a, a quote from John Owen where he said, the apostle says in Hebrews, anyway, in Hebrews chapter 6, I always like to joke about that, um, In Hebrews chapter 6, the author, God, through a human author, states a general principle that among men, among humans, among people, oaths are, quote, final for confirmation. People swear oaths to confirm something in a final way. The author then takes that general principle and says that God has sworn oaths and made covenants with man for our sake to help us trust him, he says, to show more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose. Think about this. If God promises to do something, is there, does he need anything more to guarantee that he will do it? Is not his own word good enough? But Abram asked God in Genesis 15, but how shall I know? And God kindly 
and graciously and patiently swore an oath to him or made a covenant with him. Why? Because it was necessary to make sure that God would do what he said he would do. It wasn't for God's sake. It was for Abram's sake to show him more convincingly the unchangeable nature of God's purposes or the unchangeable character of God's purpose. And the writer to the Hebrew says that God has nothing greater to swear by, so he swears by himself. As I live, says the Lord, or by myself, I swear by my own name. And then from this general principle that men swear oaths for final confirmation and that we see God doing so in Genesis 15, then this principle gets applied to oaths sworn to Jesus. And the author argues that one of the reasons why the priesthood of Jesus in the new covenant is superior to the Levitical priesthood of the Old Covenant is because there is an oath that stands behind Jesus' priesthood in the New Covenant. Look at chapter 7 now. Let's begin reading in verse 15. Chapter 6 lays out general principles of oath-swearing and its purpose and that God does this for our sake. Now we begin to read about oaths given to Christ. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, a priest who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, in other words, he must be a descendant of the tribe of Levi or particularly the the family of Aaron as a high priest, that's not the basis for his priesthood, but rather he's become a priest by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, and this is the oath sworn to Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment, the Levitical law, or the law of Levitical priests, is set aside, it's annulled, because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law, now it's abstracted to the larger category, the law, Mosaic covenant, made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced in its place. I'm adding that phrase, in its place, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without oath. There's a double negative there. It was with oath. For those who formerly became priests, the the Levites, were made such without an oath. But this one, Jesus Christ, was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The new covenant is a better covenant because behind it is an oath sworn to Jesus Christ. That oath is that he is a priest forever. He has an everlasting priesthood. And the scriptures reveal to us that everything that Jesus did in his earthly mission, in his ministry on the earth, everything that he did was done and performed in the context of a covenantal arrangement. A covenantal arrangement meaning if he performs a certain work, if he fulfills a commitment then he will receive a promised blessing. 
the servant songs of Isaiah speak of Jehovah, the servant of Jehovah, and the spirit of Jehovah that is placed upon the servant of Jehovah. The servant songs of Isaiah speak of the servant of Jehovah who is sent on a mission. He has a work to do. In Isaiah 53, we see in particular that the servant of Jehovah must give his life. He has to pour out his soul as an offering for sin. As sin is placed upon him, the sin of his people, he must pour out his soul, give his life as a sacrifice. And if he does this, and when he does this, then he will be exalted and rewarded, and his people will be made righteous, and they will share in his glory." Do you hear there, the language of servant is you have a work to do, a job to do, a mission to do, a commitment to fulfill. You are the servant of Jehovah. Jehovah has given you the work of bearing the sins of a people, offering your life for their sins, and the reward that is promised to him is a subsequent glory. If you perform this work, if you are innocent and obedient, and you pour out your soul as an offering for sin, I will accept your sacrifice. I will raise you from the dead. I will justify your people. I will give you the spoils of war, and all your people will bask in your glory. But all of this is a work-reward relationship. The servant of Jehovah must do the work in order to obtain the reward that is promised to him. And it's done on behalf of a people who are given to him. He represents as a federal head a group of people who will participate in the blessings that he wins. So this is a covenantal arrangement, and we call it the covenant of redemption, the covenant that is given to Jesus Christ incarnate, that by which he might redeem a people given unto him. The oaths promised to Christ, the work given to Christ, this is a covenant of works for Jesus Christ, God incarnate, to perform. And when he performs that work, when he is faithful, then he will receive the glory set before him. Now, the writer to the Hebrews says that this makes him guarantor of a better covenant, better than the old covenant. Why? Why do do the oaths sworn to Jesus and the promises made to him, why do they make him guarantor of a better covenant? It's because everything that Jesus accomplishes in the covenant of redemption, everything that Jesus wins for himself and his people in the covenant of redemption, it all gets packaged and wrapped up with a beautiful bow on top, and it's given to his people in the new covenant. So that the new covenant for us is a covenant of works already completed. It's a covenant of work already done. It's it's just full of the blessings. It's just the rewards. It's just the glory. It's just the spoils. It's just the righteousness and the holiness and the everlasting life, the forgiveness of sins. The covenant of redemption is a covenant for Christ to fulfill and complete, and the new covenant is that same covenant in a state of completion that is then offered freely to the world. Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 29, he said, and I covenant unto you as my Father covenanted unto me 
a kingdom. The Father covenanted unto me a kingdom. If I am faithful, I will inherit this glorious kingdom. I have done so. Now I covenant it to you in the new covenant. This brings us from the covenant of redemption, therefore, to the new covenant. The covenant of redemption, to sum it up, to restate it, was a covenant of works for Christ incarnate to perform, and if he is faithful, when he is faithful, he receives the glories promised to him. Let me add a a qualification and a caution. The covenant of redemption can easily be misunderstood in a variety of uh, terrible ways, actually. By terrible, I mean systematically destructive ways. You should not think of the covenant of redemption as God and God and God making a decision about something. That would be three wills in God, which is a heresy. We should not think that God the Son in His deity is somehow subordinate to God the Father in the covenant of redemption. None of that. Nothing. No subordination of God the Son according to His divine nature. And no no will agreeing with will in God. That would be God's in God. That's not the doctrine of the Trinity. That's not the Christian faith. And the covenant of redemption must never be articulated in a way that destroys theology proper or the doctrine of the Trinity. That's why I've emphasized this is a covenant of works for Christ incarnate. When Jesus says, not my will, but thy will be done, it's not my human will, but the singular divine will be done. And all of the obedience and the reward, the subjection of the Son, the subordination of the Son, is exclusively within the context of the Son incarnate, Jesus Christ living and dying and living again for us. But within that context, the incarnation, the covenant of redemption is most certainly and assuredly a covenant of works for Jesus Christ to perform, and which he did for us and for our salvation. And it gets wrapped up and given to us in the new covenant. What is covenanted to us in the new covenant? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 9. We all know that Jeremiah 31 tells us what's given to us in the New Covenant, but we can flesh it out, see it a little bit more looking at the book of Hebrews, which of course (laughs) quotes Jeremiah 31. But look at chapter 9 and verses 11 through 15. It says, But when Christ appeared... As a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. So he enters into heaven upon his ascension. As a high priest, he enters heaven for us, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. He enters heaven. And he offers his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
we see here that Jesus' sacrifice brings about eternal redemption. It purifies, that's the verse 12. It purifies our conscience, that's verse 14. It redeems us from transgressions, that's verse 15. And it grants us an eternal inheritance. The new covenant is everything that the Mosaic covenant wasn't. The Mosaic covenant purified the flesh, not the conscience. It reminded worshipers of sin instead of purifying their minds from sin. It kicked people out of Canaan. It disinherited people rather than granting them an eternal inheritance. This is the new covenant. And the writer to the Hebrews declares as much. He already quoted Jeremiah 31 in the previous chapter, but look at Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds... I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So God made an oath to Christ. You are a priest forever. What did this priest do? He offered a single perfect sacrifice of his own precious blood, and then he sits down at the right hand of God in heaven. And what did he accomplish in that single sacrifice and that session in heaven? He perfected for all time those who are being sanctified And the Holy Spirit bears witness. It testifies to us that this is God's covenant with us in Christ Jesus. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more because their priest sits at my right hand. Now, we could say a lot more about what Jesus accomplished and the benefits that we enjoy as a result. In sum, it's union with Christ, which grants us eternal redemption and an eternal inheritance. It makes us citizens of his kingdom. We receive in Christ everything that was promised to Christ and everything he obtained in his perfect life and death and new life, the regeneration of the soul, justification, progressive sanctification, adoption, preservation, perseverance unto the end. The covenant redeems us and grants us the kingdom. You can sum it up by saying that the, the blessings of the new covenant are eternal redemption and an eternal inheritance, one for us by Christ in the covenant of redemption and given to us in Christ in the new covenant received by faith. Those who believe receive eternal redemption. Those who believe receive an eternal inheritance, and it's offered to the whole world. This is the blessing for the Gentiles. This is what was promised to Abraham, that the nations of the earth would be blessed in his descendant. This is David's faithful son who inaugurates an eternal kingdom and draws the nations to himself. This is precisely the destination of everything that had transpired before it. This is the unveiled mystery of Christ, which God had decreed and declared from the beginning. There's a wonderful summary of the mystery of Christ and covenant theology in Romans chapter 15. Turn there with me, please.
if you need a summary statement of covenant theology, this is a good one. Romans 15, verses 8 through 12. The Apostle Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse, that's the Davidic king, will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Here you see that Jesus' salvation of Jews and Gentiles in the New Covenant is not a deviation from the Old Covenant. It's a confirmation of the promises to the patriarchs. It's him being a servant to the circumcised and including the Gentiles in this one singular family, this one singular covenant, this one singular plan. The faithful son of David came to the circumcised and confirmed the promises given to the patriarchs. The one who blesses the nations was born from their line. He came to his own. He did not reject or abandon his people. The faithful son of David's throne was established, and he was given an everlasting kingdom. And Israel and Judah were called to join this kingdom. They were not excluded. They were not rejected. They cut themselves off and excluded themselves by rejecting the Christ and refusing to believe in him and enter into his kingdom. And God used their rejection to send the gospel to the nations and establish a kingdom from every tribe, people, language, and nation, which is the church, the heirs of an eternal inheritance. And all of this, every piece, every part, every parcel, every step, every advance, every twist, every turn, every up, every down, every last thread, every last stream, all of it was the plan of God hidden for ages but now revealed the mystery of Christ. When Paul meditated on God's plan and the mystery of Christ, it led him to praise. He said, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The covenant of redemption is a covenant to redeem the elect, a covenant to redeem a people from all nations in the whole world. And the new covenant is the means by which this happens. In other words, Jesus wins the glory in the covenant of redemption, and then that glory is given to the world. It's offered to the world in the new covenant to be received by faith. What remains, therefore, is to discuss what we would call the eschatological nature of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Covenants are used to establish and govern kingdoms. The covenant of redemption promises a kingdom to Jesus Christ. I give you a people. I give you a glory. I give you an everlasting life. 
And we know that this includes the, the cosmic reconciliation of all things. Jesus wins a glory not just for you and me. He wins a glory for the angels too. And he wins a glory for all creation that groans and waits for its inheritance, for its adoption, for its glory. Jesus has won a glory for the unfallen angels. He has won a glory for the elect men. And he has won a glory for creation. And so in the covenant of redemption, Jesus Christ is given a kingdom. In the new covenant, it's the means by which we enter into that kingdom and become members and citizens of that kingdom. The kingdom of Israel and its covenants were preparatory. They were designed to be dismantled when the final product, when the substance arrived, when the perfect, the good things that have come were introduced, when a better hope was introduced, the old was made obsolete and unnecessary. But the kingdom of Christ is not a preparatory stage for something else. It is the end itself manifested in the present. That's why we talk about the eschatological nature of the kingdom. The kingdom of Christ is the end. It is the final stage. It is the reality that everything has been driving towards. It is the picture on the Lego set. It's the completion, the finality. Eschatology is the study of final things, the last things. And the kingdom of Christ is the last thing. As Jesus inaugurates his kingdom here on earth through his death and his resurrection, winning that glory, he inaugurates the end of history. He initiates the final stage of all time. It's the beginning of the end. Consider with me four things as we draw to a conclusion. Firstly, the assembly of the kingdom. I've said that Jesus inaugurated his kingdom in his earthly ministry, especially his life and death, whereby he obtains the glory promised to him. He's inaugurated this kingdom, but where do we see it? Where do we see the kingdom of Christ? Well, the kingdom of Christ is that new creation inheritance. It's that new creation glory that he has won, which is a future reality waiting for us. It's the consummation of all things. The kingdom of Christ is the future. But, however, we see that future and we enter into that future, and we experience that future here and now in the present in the church. The church is the kingdom of Christ, the future, final, eschatological, consummated kingdom manifested and inaugurated in the present age. The word that's used in the New Testament and is commonly translated church is the common Greek word for an assembly, which was mentioned by our brother Pascal. The the secular usage of this term is that a city has an assembly of its citizens where the business of the city, not so much uh, trade, but the, the sort of government business, the official business of the city is to be transacted as the citizens come to the assembly and deliberate and work together to do the business of the city itself. The ecclesia is the assembling of the city. A city has a particular place where its, assemb- where its citizens are assembled and gathered and the business of the city is conducted. Well, the church, uh, Jesus and his apostles, use, take this secular common language and they give it a special meaning where the kingdom of Jesus Christ also has an ecclesia. 
The kingdom of Jesus Christ assembles its citizens together, and that is the church. The church is the assembly of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And as covenants establish and govern kingdoms, so the new covenant establishes and governs the kingdom of Christ, the church. The church is established and governed by the new covenant. Secondly, the citizens of the kingdom. Who are the citizens of this kingdom that are gathered together in its assembly, in in its church? During Jesus' ministry and the subsequent ministry of the apostles, those who received the gospel, which is often called the word of the kingdom, those who received, those who believed, were gathered together into the church. This is what the Great Commission does. The word is preached, people respond by faith, they are baptized, and they are added to the church. So the citizens of the kingdom of Christ are those who are born again with the resurrection power of the glory of Jesus. The future glory of eternal life has been powerfully sent into their souls to regenerate their souls and cause them to be born again through the preaching of the gospel. When the gospel is preached, the power of the resurrection, that is the future age that has broken into the present, that power, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, penetrates the soul and regenerates it. It's the kingdom of Christ's power in the present age through the preaching of the gospel. And those who are regenerated and who profess their faith, these are the citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Because the church is the kingdom of Christ in the present age, it has what you've heard before, it has an already not yet character to it. We're already citizens of the kingdom of Christ, but we have not yet entered into the fullness of the glory that he has won for us. To be a citizen of the kingdom is much like enrolling for a trip and waiting for the plane to depart. You have a ticket. You have a seat, a reserved spot on the bus or the train or the plane that has a specific destination. But you haven't left yet. You haven't departed. And so the church is that waiting terminal where everyone has the same ticket, going to the same place, They all have a reserved seat for the same destination. And the church is where we enroll in the new creation kingdom of Jesus Christ. We are a new humanity in the second and last Adam. We are the heirs of the consummation, and we have begun to experience the powers of the age to come in the present while we await the fullness of our inheritance. And because the church is the future in the present, the final kingdom already inaugurated, it means that joining and leaving the church or the visible kingdom have equal but opposite values. So joining or leaving the church have equal but opposite values. Think of it this way. If the kingdom of Christ is eternal redemption and an eternal inheritance granted in the new covenant, and if this is what the church is, these glories that have begun in the present, then what does it mean to join it, to join the church? And what does it mean to abandon the church? To join the church is to place oneself on the side of Jesus Christ. It's to enroll in the new creation, 
To join the church is to profess that Jesus is Lord and to believe that God raised him from the dead. It's to claim that the new birth has already been experienced, that the power of the resurrection has already regenerated your soul, and that you are now bearing fruit, the spiritual fruit of regeneration through a profession of faith and a life of thankful obedience. To join the church is to claim Christ and his covenant and his kingdom. The visible church, therefore, is to be comprised only of those who can make a valid claim to this. And it should be a great comfort and encouragement to those who profess faith when the gathered local church affirms their profession of faith and welcomes them into their membership. The citizens of the kingdom are professing believers who have been born again by the power of the future, reaching them in the present age through the gospel. Thirdly, the traitors of the kingdom. Since the church is the kingdom of Christ in the present age, which in the present age we still live in a fallen world cursed by the covenant of works, the church, therefore, is subject to the difficulties of life in the here and now. As Jesus taught in the parable of the wheat and the tares, a sinful world has an effect on the kingdom. But as no unclean thing was to be admitted in Eden, nor any unclean thing to be permitted in the temple in Jerusalem, so also the church must not allow any unclean thing into God's sanctuary. Consequently, sin has no place in the new covenant kingdom of Christ. Believers are to put sin to death in their own personal lives as they are renewed in the inner man. Believers are to pursue righteousness and to bear the fruit of the workers who belong to the Messiah's vineyard. But when a professing believer does not simply fall into sin or step into sin, but walks in sin and practices sin, as 1 John 1 and th- chapter 1 and 3 talk about, then there's an inconsistency between that person's public profession and their public actions. They publicly profess Christ, but they're not living for Christ. And as a result, in the case of a lack of repentance, the church is to call such a person to flee from their sin. But if they will not, if that person will not listen to the church's exhortation to repentance, and if sufficient evidence in time have transpired, what happens? That person's profession of faith is invalidated. And they are to be removed from the church by excommunication. And as joining the church declares that one is a child of God and an heir of heaven according to human judgment and scriptural reasons, so also excommunicating someone from the church means that they are declared a child of Satan and an heir of hell according to human judgment and scriptural criteria an equal and opposite value because the church is not just some social club. It's not, well, I've, I've decided to become a, a member of this church and, you know, we'll see. This is the future and the present. This is the final kingdom. This is it. And to join it is to say, I am an heir of the glory of Jesus Christ that he won. But to be excluded from that is to say, I prefer the darkness and the damnation of hell. What does it mean when the gathered church of Christ declares that an individual is not 
one of the sheep of Jesus Christ, but rather as a goat. It's a very serious statement, isn't it? To depart from the covenant kingdom of Christ is to depart from the kingdom covenanted by Christ. So how should we view those apostates, those who fully and finally reject the kingdom and the covenant? Well, as was said by Pascal in a different lesson, it's quite simple. We use the language of 1 John. They went out from us because they were not of us. And what they claimed was not true. And it's now been exposed. One of the problems here is that people think in terms of reality. Was it real? Were they really this or really that? But reality and irreality are not the right categories to use here because the real categories, or the best categories, are true and false. A false claim is a real claim, just as counterfeit money is a real thing. It's just really counterfeit. So also, when it comes to apostates, what they have done is all too real. And they're guilty of what? Of making a false claim. They claimed to be members of the covenant and kingdom of Christ. They claimed to love him and believe in him. But it was a lie. It was false. And their treachery and deceit and treason is all too real. And they are liable to greater judgment for their deceit and their departure. So as a church, we need to be willing to accept professions of faith because that's how we judge people and use the judgment of charity, but we also have to be willing to excommunicate exposed hypocrites. And both are evaluated on the same grounds, profession of faith and fruit of the Spirit, but with equal and opposite meaning. In the one, we say, yes, we see a profession of faith and the fruit of the Spirit, we bring them into the kingdom. In the other, we say, we no longer see see this, and you're not responding to the church's desire to help you and protect you and restore you and encourage you and bring you to repentance and peace, but rather you're forcing your way out, and so therefore we must cut you off. And we declare you to be no child of God, no heir of heaven, but rather we unmask you and we place you on the side of Satan with his hell-bound children. Fourthly and lastly, the sacraments of the kingdom. We've seen in many covenants that God gave a visible sign of some kind as a means of communicating the covenant to the people or reminding the people of the covenant. The trees in the garden were a reminder to Adam and to Eve of God's promises as well as God's threats, as well as God's commands. The trees were a visible word of the covenant of works. We've seen that the rainbow was a visible word and reminder of God's promises to us to preserve the world. Circumcision was a visible sign and reminder to the Israelites that they've been set apart as holy by God and must live unto him. In the new covenant also, we are given visible signs as a means of communicating visibly God's covenant promises to us, and we call these signs sacraments. The sacraments are God's covenant word made visible to us, tangible and visibly participating in the life of the covenant. In the new covenant, of course, those two sacraments are baptism and the Lord's Supper, both of which make the covenant promises visible to us. And it's important to understand that sacraments are both God's word to his people and also his people's participation in the promises made visible. 
And as Baptists, we have to be honest that this is an area where we have been deficient, where in many cases, both in the case of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we have spoken about them either as purely something we do in the case of baptism or purely something God does, just reminding us of the death of Jesus, neither of which is a complete or true understanding of what these sacraments are. Baptism is a visible word. It's a representation and a promise which declares that all those who are united to Christ in his death and his new life have escaped judgment and overcome death. They have a new life and they are new creations. So baptism is God's visible word and promise in the new covenant that all those who are in his son are new creations by virtue of their union with Jesus in his death and resurrection. It is God's word to the people. Baptism says if you are united to Christ in his death and resurrection, you have eternal life. God speaks first. At the same time, why is anyone baptized? Because you believe those promises. Because you say, I am a child of God. I am a new creation. I am united to Christ in his death and resurrection. I believe this word of God. Therefore, baptize me. Let me pass tangibly and visibly through this sign of the promises that I myself believe. But you see, we must not ever make it. Baptism is about me doing my thing. It's, it's not you doing your thing. It is first God declaring his word and then we humbly and joyously receiving and entering into what God has declared. We have to be very careful as Baptists not to fall into a, a ditch, perhaps unintentionally, of making baptism a, a one-way thing from us to God. It is first from God to us and then from us to God. And baptism is a perfect symbol because as regeneration is the invisible initiation into the kingdom of Christ as the power of the future penetrates our souls in the present. It's the first blessing of the application of salvation to Christ's people. So the symbol of regeneration and union with Christ, baptism, is the visible initiation into the kingdom of Christ, the first blessing of integration into the local gathered kingdom of the saints. But it is God's word to us And then it is our faith and response to that word as we partake and participate. So also the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper are also visible words to us of the covenant promises of God. Because Jesus' death has occurred, our debts have been paid to the law. Because his death has occurred, we all have a right and a title to the new creation. Because his death has occurred. Eternal life is ours. It is our inheritance, our privilege, and our blessing. It belongs to us by birthright from our federal head, Jesus Christ. It is ours by covenant. Our sins are forgiven in the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ. So the Lord's Supper also has two sides. On the one hand, God declares with the bread and the wine, he says, your sins are forgiven in the body and blood of my son, Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, why do we eat that bread? Why do we drink that wine? It's because we are saying, my sins are forgiven in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, and I feed on him by faith. My soul is is nourished and fed by Jesus Christ as I think of his promises, his word to me in the covenant, and I am reassured of the forgiveness of my sins in his perfect and precious promises to me. 
But the Lord's Supper has a special significance in that uh, baptism is uh, tips more on the individual side. Baptism is a collective event because no one says, hey, baptize me. And then we say, okay, okay, we'll do it. No, the church agrees, let us baptize this person. So there is something communal about it as the church baptizes you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but only one person is baptized. Even so, baptism is a, a, a means of grace and a word of God to everyone who sees it. But the Lord's Supper in a special way is even more communal because we all eat the same bread, we all drink the same wine, we all co- collectively confess the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is the collective faith of the church every single Lord's Day saying, may this be the last one because we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and we don't want the symbols of our Lord. We want our Lord. I don't want a picture of my fiancé, of my groom, of my bride-to-be, of the bridegroom. I don't want a picture of my beloved. I want my beloved. And so every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it should be hoping that it's the last time that we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper because we're waiting. He has died. He has shed his blood. His body has been broken, but he rose from the dead. And we await his return to bring us into the fullness of the glory that he has won for us. When he comes, there will be no more need for sacraments. We will experience the fullness of what these signs provide to us in foretastes and glimpses. The Lord's Supper is the church's collective confession of its hope that Jesus is returning. In in the sacraments, God makes the covenant promises visible to us. I will remember your sins no more. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, God is saying to his people, I will remember your sins no more. In conclusion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when he does, he will bring all things to consummation. He came first as Savior, he comes second as judge. And the end that God decreed from the beginning will be achieved. The covenants and kingdoms of this world will all have served their purpose and played their part in Jesus Christ bringing all things to completion and unity. For now, the citizens of Christ's kingdom from all nations, we wander as strangers and sojourners in a strange and foreign land, fed and nourished in the church. But when Jesus Christ returns, we will enter into the fullness of our inheritance, a new body in a new creation. But above all, what is the greatest blessing of the covenant? What is the greatest glory for God's people? It's God himself. God himself covenanting himself to us. Don't think of salvation as the blessing of the covenant. Salvation is a means to an end. God saves us so that we can have perfect communion with him. He's the end. He's the supreme blessing. He's the the sum and substance of all good, the original, the true glory. And when Christ returns with a perfect body and a perfect soul and a perfect creation, we will enjoy God who is our portion. And that blessedness of communion with God 
will endure forever and ever because God himself will be our blessedness. We will enjoy him and glorify him forever, and we will be in both body and soul eternally satisfied by an eternal and infinite good, the sum and source of all blessedness, God himself forever and ever. And that Jesus Christ, in whom all the promises of God are yea and amen, he comforts us, his covenant people, the citizens of his kingdom in the present age, he comforts us with the certainty of his return. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, And let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We have learned that you covenant with us to give us blessings and promises that are beyond our reach as creatures, and we find in the new covenant that you have covenanted yourself to us. There is no higher blessing, there is no greater good, and yet you have freely done this for us. And not only have you freely done it for us, but you have done it for us when we were yet sinners, when we hated you. And rebelled against you, you sent your Son to perform a covenant of redemption on our behalf and to reconcile us to yourself and to bring us to yourself, to make us fit for communion with you, that we might enjoy you and glorify you forever and ever and ever. And so we can only say and sing glory and praise be to your holy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and thanks be to your holy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you and we praise you. We exalt and adore our great and glorious God, mighty and majestic and merciful. We praise you for all that you have done for us, for us who were undeserving, for we who ought to have been banished to the darkness and torments of everlasting fire, and yet you have saved us from our sins by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. O Lord our God, we praise you. O Lord our God, we thank you. And we ask you to help us, whether ministers or, ministers or members of your covenant and your kingdom, help us to be faithful and help us to be fed and nourished and encouraged and strengthened and fortified by your covenant promises given to us in your word read unto us in the scriptures and your word made visible unto us in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Feed our faith, strengthen us, and help us to walk in this wilderness on the way to our Canaan, that new creation that has been prepared for us. And we pray lastly, Come, Lord Jesus, bring all things to consummation. Bring glory to your own name, the name in which we pray to our Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.